Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Today, we continue our series on asking questions about multicultural Anglicanism. What is multicultural Anglicanism? Where do we see it at work? Is it really possible in a tradition originating in England and carrying a lot of European cultural signifiers? Is it at heart a white man's religion? Now, this phrase, white man's religion, has been the complaint of many Native American and indigenous communities against Christianity. Especially, it was thrown around in the mid to late 20th century in very serious debates about preserving precious tribal and cultural identities. What has the Episcopal Church done right in regards to interacting with Native identities? And what's been difficult, awkward, or disastrous? Bishops Carol Gallagher and Michael Smith join us today to engage these questions. Bishop Carroll is canon for the central region of the Diocese of Massachusetts, where she works with Native American and Indigenous leaders. She's also an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation and has been a part of the Bishop's Native Collaborative, served as a bishop in North Dakota, Newark, and Southern Virginia, and also has a couple of books that I will mention in the show notes. Bishop Michael is currently the Assistant Bishop of Dallas and previously the Bishop of North Dakota. He's an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation of Oklahoma. He has served churches in Oklahoma and Minnesota before coming to North Dakota, and he is a Benedictine Oblate of St. John's Abbey in Minnesota. I sat down with the both of them, with all of their stories, all of their history as Native American bishops working in and with Native American communities. And I asked, what does it mean to be Native American and Anglican. Here are their stories.
How do you two know each other? I've heard that if you want to have fun at a conference, you just watch Bishop Carroll and Bishop Michael interacting with each other. Can you tell me a little bit about your friendship? Oh, Carol and I uh, have been friends and colleagues for uh, probably 30 years. Uh, and it began when we were priests. Uh, I was a priest in the Diocese of Minnesota serving on the White Earth Reservation. And uh, we met at a winter talk uh, conference in Oklahoma where it was a national gathering of, uh, of uh, Episcopal indigenous leaders. And Carol, where were you serving then? Um, I think at that point, I may have either been the assistant in the cathedral in Baltimore or had been, was the assistant in um, Radnor in Pennsylvania. Um, I think we met before you went to Minnesota. I think we met when you were still in um, teaching, we were in uh, chaplain in a school. Oh, I, uh, I was still in um, Ardmore. That's why I served my curacy in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, right. We were both curates when we met. The other thing is we were, um, Michael and I and a group of about four or five other people were all in seminary at similar time. Um, our native staff officer at the time, Awana Anderson, had a group of um, folks who she was trying to raise up as native clergy. And so she assigned us a lot of tasks. And Michael and I ended up having to design on the spot liturgies for various different conferences like winter talk and things like that. I mean, moment by moment, putting things together. So we were sort of thrown in um, to try to figure out what music and who was going to do what. So um, we also had a, a lot of fun with those tasks. You were at different seminaries, but you were thrown together to create liturgies on the fly. I would imagine that being in that task with anybody, you'd either come out of that really good friends or just the worst of enemies. <laughs> as long as Carol did what I said, things were fun. <laughs> <laughs> now we see the truth. Now we I see never, the truth. I never did what he said. I just, <laughs> I just, I just had a you know smile and nod disposition sometimes and like, okay, fine. So we've already gone back 30 years and looked at some of your time in seminary and how you two became friends. And then what are some of the stepping stones or events that brought you to the ministry that you're involved in today? Being a, a, a tribal member um, enabled me to attend seminary uh, with other native students in um, at, at Seabury Western when uh, there was a national program going on of uh, recruiting uh, indigenous people to serve uh, as Episcopal priests. Uh, as it happens, I was uh, raised in the Roman Catholic Church and joined uh, the Episcopal Church on September 1st, which in those days was the feast of David Pendleton Okerhater, who uh, was um, the first um, uh, indigenous person on the uh, on our calendar of saints. And um, that call uh, through native ministry has always been part of, of my life. And as a result of it, it took me to Minnesota, to the White Earth Reservation. It took me west to North Dakota as bishop, where I worked with a number of tribes. And it continues to be with me as, um, as I work with uh, the new clergy from Navajo land um, in their continuing education. 
I was raised um, in the Presbyterian Church. My dad was a Navy chaplain and a Presbyterian minister. So when I was a little girl, I thought my dad owned the church. So, um, uh, so I grew up a PK, um, and really, you know, in my teen, early adulthood, sort of got involved in the Catholic renewal movement in some ways and really trying to find my own way of being a Christian, um, seeking that. Um, my mother, whose name is Betty Walking Stick, spent all of her life doing um, raising money for various different, um, particularly Bacone College, and educating kids in school about Native people. Um, she was a very um, faithful Christian woman, um, but she was also really committed to education. And so that, from a really early point in my life, was woven in deep and strong. Um, so going into the ministry, I wasn't raised um, on a reservation. The Cherokees don't have an official reservation. Um, and but most of my walking stick family is in Oklahoma. So we spent a good deal of time there. And so from early on in my sense of call, um, I was somewhat reluctant. I didn't have any I didn't know any women who were ordained. Um, I really struggled with that and tried to um, actually even tried to make my husband um, go into the ministry. Um, he's smart enough to tell. He's smart enough to tell me that you know if God was going to call him, God would call him directly and not use me as an operator. So um, I had to check in with my own my dad, who sat down and said, you know. You can do um, a Christian education degree, but if God is really calling you, which you need to follow that. And my dad was um, obviously a Navy chaplain, fairly conservative, um, very evangelical. And so when it, that when he said that to me, um, I felt that that was the affirmation and the direction I needed. And he was really a support throughout my time in seminary and beyond. Um, and when he was, when I was ordained a priest, my father was um, by the uh, Ted Eastman, who was my bishop in Maryland. Um, he was allowed to lay hands on me with the priests in the diocese. So my commitment has always been to following my mother's lead, which is constant education and raising up Native people and helping other people understand the gifts that Native people bring, but also working with our people across the um, so for the past 30 years, both on a very um, church-wide level and in various different specific places, Navajo land, Alaska, um, South Dakota, I mean, North Dakota and other places, Hawaii included, really helping people with their um, educational process, and which actually took me to um, seek out getting a... PhD, um, looking at the issues of raising up Native leadership in the church. Bishop Michael, you are a member of the Potawatomi Nation, and then Bishop Carroll, you're a member of the Cherokee Nation. Um, but what tribes or nations do you work among as bishops currently? Uh, talk a little bit about these communities, the character of these communities. Well, yeah, yeah I can start in move backwards. Um, currently, I'm working, and Carol is doing some work as well, with the uh, Navajo land clergy. 
Uh, and of course, they are blessed uh, with a number of young seminary trained Navajo clergy, um, much to the credit of Bishop Dave Bailey, who has done an outstanding job there in recruiting and following through and seeing that people uh, receive the, the, the uh, education and the ordinations that enable them to serve as, as, as uh, first rate uh, Episcopal priests. Of course, with that group of young clergy, um, now they're dealing with the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic in a way that many of us in this country are not. And so uh, that occupies much of their time and forms much of their spirituality as they've been um, forced, in a sense, to move beyond the four walls of their congregations to take food to people who are isolated. And one of them uh, recently shared with me that you know, the first time they delivered food uh, to people, um, people said, thank you. The second time they did it, they thought, oh, well, that's the church's job. The third time they said, what are these people about? And, you know, to me, that's really the beginning of evangelism when people ask that question and they're asking that question of, of uh, the Navajo clergy. I, I have a sense that the church there is never going to be the same, but it will be um, new and improved and renewed uh, because of the uh, pain they're going through right now with the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Before that, as Bishop of North Dakota, I had the pleasure of working with a number of tribal peoples, Dakotas, Lakotas, um, um, Ojibwe, and Arikara of the Fort Berthold uh, Nation. And uh, each of those had some commonalities and all, and then some differences in their cultures. Uh, and before that, I spent a good amount of time on uh, 10 years on the White Earth Ojibwe Reservation in Northwest Minnesota, um, where I was vicar of congregations there and also worked uh, with the um, uh, Dakota people in the South um, on, on diocesan-wide um, projects. So I've had a, had a good experience with many of the uh, uh, um, uh, tribes where Episcopalians have historically been part of their lives. Mm. Are, are all of these places places where uh, the Episcopal Church has been present for some time? Oh, that's correct. Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, you know, there's the old saying, the old joke about the Episcopal Church that as uh, they were moving from the East Coast, that the Baptists went on foot and the Methodists went on horseback and the Episcopalians waited for the Pullman cars, uh, the luxury rides. <laughs> but that was not that that is not true in the upper Midwest, where people like James Lloyd Breck and Emma Gabo. Um, and uh, Bishop Whipple of Minnesota really were were here and on the cutting edge, um, not only in uh, evangelizing um, the tribal peoples, but also in serving their uh, their their needs. Uh, so it, it's a proud, um, for the most part, it's a proud history for the Episcopal Church here. Hmm. That's lovely, Bishop Carroll. Um, what communities, tribes, nations um, have you? had the privilege and joy of being part of? Well, I, um, I have been in many senses blessed in some of the most um, wonderful ways to, to be invited and included. Um, 
in many nations, including my own, of course. Um, but when I was first elected as bishop in Southern Virginia, um, I had been working with some of the tribes in um, Pennsylvania, Delaware, um, and, and uh, Maryland. But I was invited to be part of the Virginia um, Council, I guess. Um, at that time in 2002, the tribes of Virginia, those who first um, welcomed those who were part of now our nation, our church, the Anglican Church, um, are, were not federally recognized. They were finally recognized in 2017, but up until that point, they were not. So the Chickahominy, the Upper Mattapanai, Rappahannock, Monacan, um, Nassimon, and so all of those tribes, which were some of them, um, you know, part of the legacy of Pocahontas and others who um, claim those connections, um, were really unrecognized um, by our federal government. Um, but they taught me a lot about um, gentleness and um, accepting of who they were in the midst of um, a very complicated South. Um, and when they put their bid forward years ago to be federally recognized, um, somebody was, we were in a conference somewhere and somebody asked, well, all you want to do, right, is to get, um, to get casinos, you know, and one of the um, tribal chiefs stood up and said, you know what, we don't, we won't have um, casinos. And the interviewer asked why. And he said, we're all Baptist. We're not allowed. Which also tells a story about the fact that even though the Anglican Church early on reached out to and did some conversion of our Native people very quickly, they really um, dropped that on the East Coast. So, I mean, presently in the greater Boston area, I'm working with um, the whole province one indigenous justice network and that, you know, the Wampanoag, the Mashpee Wampanoag are the primary tribe in this area, um, but there are half dozen other tribes, tribal groups in Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. And um, when I was in Montana, we had 11 tribes of which there were a little shell, Chippewa, Crow, Blackfeet, Northern Cheyenne, and Cree, um, and in Alaska, we worked, besides working with Mike in the Navajo, um, in Alaska, Athabasca, Clinkett, and um, many of the tribes along, um, above, you know, um, the Arctic Circle. So it has been, I have found it so, um, I feel honored to work with other Native people and be allowed to share some of their traditions and um, teach other people how the, the gifts that they bring to the world and to the church specifically. People aren't getting out much these days, but they are listening to podcasts. So if you're in publishing, nonprofit ministry, church technology, vestments, or anything in between, we would love to advertise for you right here on our weekly podcast. Just email Andrew Russell at arussell at livingchurch.org. That's A-R-U-S-S-E-L-L -L at livingchurch.org, and he'll get you started.
everyone I think who's listening to this has at least a general sense of the um, complex and in places very dark history and past uh, between the meetings of white Christians and native communities and then white Christians and native Christians and how uh, these histories have played out over time. uh, Many of the injustices that are still playing out today. Here's my, my meatiest question for you today. I would love to know how you would both talk about what a Native American Anglican identity is. In other words, when have you found being an Episcopalian a help to your identity and ministry as Native Americans? And when have you found it a hindrance? When has it been a blessing, enhancing and and clarifying your Native American identity and ministry? And where has it just been awkward or difficult? Well, I, I was just thinking of um, uh, a video that we viewed many years ago of the First Nations elder from Canada. And in, the, in this interview, she is asked uh, a similar question about, well, how do, uh, what do you think about Jesus? Uh, is, it, is Christianity white man's religion? And she stopped and thought for a while. And then she said, well, you know, we never really had any problem with Jesus. It's just the church that caused us problems. And I, I think that, that Christianity in Indian country probably uh, is represented by that statement. So it's not so much a question of when the Episcopal church has been a problem. It's when has the Christian church been a problem Uh, But when you then isolate to the church side, I would say my experience has been that the Episcopal Church has a pretty good reputation among Christians uh, on our reservations. Would you say that's the case, Carol? Yeah, I I would say that partly because the nature of being Episcopalian is we, you know, and I can say this from um, from a raised up Presbyterian, you know, doctrinal situation, we don't have the same sort of dogmatic ways of being. So there's a lot more flexibility, which is also sometimes to our undoing. Um, I think our liturgy for the most part, whether it's low church, high church, or somewhere in between, oftentimes draws native people because we understand ceremony. Um, there's, there's some beauty that we understand, some mystery that is, you know, not um, a theological conversation as much as a um, physical conversation. I mean, just something that really is, you know, inviting and drawing. The other part is, unfortunately, the white church culture um, that came with it, the colonial church, for example, um, didn't understand the the culture of the people and saw it as evil in some places. And that made that much harder. Depending on particularly the clergy leadership, um, some were much more inviting and understanding to identity and others just couldn't interpret it at all. And so shut everything down. Yes, I... I, I um I think the ceremony part is very important, but I also think that um, there is a 
a mystical part, a spiritual uh, dimension to the faith, uh, and that that is appealing uh, to Native people as well. Could you give an example of a place where where that really came alive in a moment in your ministry? I, I've had several experiences like that. Um, and let me let me also say we need to be careful because every Native community is is unique. And even on the same reservation, different communities have different practices and that that uh, uh, plays out in the church. And so part of ministry uh, in Native communities is really being discerning and honoring the local traditions that are there. Uh, for example, I served in one community where um, the spiritual leader and the priest, the, the traditional Native spiritual leader and the, and the priest, were kind of seen as co-pastors of the community, and there weren't a lot of distinctions there. And so at a funeral, which usually was held at a, at a school, a school setting, because our church buildings were too tiny uh, to accommodate the crowds, you might have a, a drums uh, and a pipe ceremony on one side and a Eucharist at the other with both sides participating with um, smudging um, of, of sage and sweetgrass um, going um, back and forth. And so there wasn't a disconnect in terms of the spirituality of, of uh, traditional uh, Native worship and also Christian worship, but it seemed to work together well. And to me, that that's the most holistic community I've been part of. I've also been, on the other hand, I've been places where um, there would be an Episcopal church sponsoring a powwow um, where and the, the evening, it'd be a Saturday evening, and the benches would be placed in a circle because a powwow is always uh, conducted in a circle and the dancing uh, goes in a particular direction. Well, they placed the benches in a circle, and lo and behold, on Sunday morning when it was time to church, they were in straight lines because that's the way pews are set up. So there's a disconnect there. So I think that's part of of what uh, these younger Native clergy are called to do, to be able to bridge those without forcing things on people. One of our curses is that we've got non, non-Native people trying to tell Native people how to be Native, and that just does not work uh, because we've been going through this for, for generations and generations, and you don't just begin uh, with a clean slate uh, with any new uh, generation that comes around. Well, and I, I was thinking of, I mean, two vivid things came to mind for me. One is that in Montana, we had... Um, a multi-tribal group called the Tejendawagan Society that met um, Saturday evening in the cathedral, St. Peter's Cathedral in Helena. And we had a drum group and um, flute playing and a spiritual leader and a priest. Um, it was a modified Eucharist, but it was very much, there was, uh, you know, sage and blessing and smudging and, it was really a very holistic service and time together. And immediately they went and had a meal because that's what we do. Um, you know, that was part of the, the whole ceremony. Um, and it, they had really worked hard over the years to make that very much um, a gift to the entire diocese, not just to the folks in Helena, 
um, and the native folks in Helena was a, they were very non intentionally not excluding anyone. Um, and we often had them um, do a presentation at convention. At one convention, um, close to the end of my time, one of our native leaders um, had been given a pipe um, from a spouse and several of the leaders gathered. And this is not my tradition, but um, they presented me with the pipe and taught me how to use it. And um, these were all elders in that community. And it was so moving for me because our traditions are very different from tribe to tribe. And so I never assume and try to take on anybody else's traditions, but um, it was such a gift. And I um, have it with me in my office all the time. And that connection is so um, spiritual and mystical in some senses and very much based um, in at a different space, so it w wouldn't upset some folks. But there's a lot of work we have to do, um, and our young leaders have to work through the traditional spirituality, and um, and because our some of our traditional spiritualities have been named by the larger culture as pagan or those kinds of things, people can be very defensive and self-protective. I'd love to ask you, too, about some of these points of tension, not just between Native communities and non-Native communities, but, you know, even within a particular tribe, you're going to have people with different, you know, uh, with different opinions on this, different feelings on this. Um, it seems that there is still some tension, even with some of these holistic combinations of uh, practices of worship with traditional practices there's still some places where people feel uncomfortable with that. And someone might say, you know, well, when we're doing smudging, how do I know that that's not, you know, that I'm not sort of honoring a spirit that I don't want to be honoring? How do I know that I'm worshiping God through that or that somehow these practices are drawn into the practices of the church so that they're all, um, honoring Jesus and worshiping Jesus and honoring God. Uh, so I'm wondering how you might answer that and whether you see places, I'm not even going to see whether I'm going to say where you see places that are exciting to you where people are working some of this stuff out. Well, there has been uh, for the older generation that is passing away. There uh, clearly were distinctions made between being Christian and being a traditional native person. And then you have a generation of people uh, during the 60s and 70s who basically said uh, Christianity is white man's religion. That's not for us. And so they walked away. But now you have a generation of people who are being raised up who, like the elder, First Nations elder, um, are proud of being native and also love Jesus. And so that's the sign of hope. This is one of the first generations to finally work those kind of things out. Now, I saw this in play in one of the churches I served at a funeral because the community rule there was you could have a drum and smudging at the cemetery, but never in the church building. Um, 
But one time, I they had a thurible there, um, uh, the uh, uh, vessel that you you um, burn incense in, and we burned sage in the thurible and used a star quilt as a pall, and everyone loved that. And so there are ways, I think, liturgically and in ceremony to be able to bridge those kinds of things. Your question about what spirit are you calling on is solved, I think, by, I make clear, I'm calling on the Holy Spirit of Jesus to be there and that that God, the creator, be honored in all that we are doing in this setting. You know, I, when I, this question comes, and it's not a, you know, uncommon question. Um, I immediately hear the words of um, Peter's dream. You know, how can you call unclean what I have called clean? We have our, the white culture often called things unclean because they were afraid of it. And Peter was offered um, foreign food that wasn't kosher. Um, and he was afraid, again, he was honoring the wrong God um, because foreign food would have been offered to idols, right? So, so for me, it's God has called me into this place, not only as a priest or a bishop, um, as a child of God, as a Cherokee, and you know, biracial, that I am called to this place of seeing the blessings of the God of um, Isaac and Jacob, the God of um, all of our history, our Christian history and our Jewish history embedded within um, our native people. And that the gifts that people bring, um, we are not, at least in my mind, I am never honoring you know, a foreign God. I am honoring the gifts that the people have brought. And, um, and trying to find ways to help people use the gifts that they have um, for the sake of, of Jesus, for the sake of the whole community, for the sake of lifting everyone up. So. Well, to wrap us up today, can you each tell me one thing, one value that you think that Native communities can bring to the table right now in the church or in our nation that's really needed? We've got coronavirus. We've got a really um, troubled atmosphere in our nation. We've got difficult things happening and difficult decisions to make. Um, What can Native communities bring to the table in our nation? Can you each name a value? Gosh, I can name a couple. One is one is humor. Um, Native people. That was the first thing that came to mind with me. Native people are so good at laughing at themselves and their situations, and that that uh, a lot of people don't know. It's um, uh, there. There is a humility that comes from teasing and playing with one another that lightens the load a little bit. The other is resiliency. When you're talking to people who have survived attempted genocide and and come out on this side and they're still here and are still living and and uh, working and contributing uh, to this earth, um, 
there's something to be learned that that this too shall pass and we'll make it through to the other side. Well, and I agree with I agree with all of those. And I also think that the centrality of relationship and interdependency and and hospitality, not as, you know, a frilly thing, but a real genuine hospitality. Um, you would never one never goes to a native household or invite somebody over without offering somebody something to eat, something to drink. I mean, there's always that kind of awareness of the needs of others. Thank you for sharing your stories. And um, I think this will make a great interview. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Amber. And in our language, miigwech. Madot. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to tune into part one of our ongoing conversation about multicultural Anglicanism, where we spoke with Esau McCauley and Mark Clavier about their perspectives in the Black Church in America and the Church in Wales. And that episode aired on June 25th. Finally, look later this fall for a photo essay in the Living Church magazine featuring life and ministry in Navajo land. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.